At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. You will work. You will battle for us. You will serve us. Robots of the world, the power of man has fallen. A new world has arisen. The real robots march. This is my kid's voice changer robot toy. Robots are everywhere. A few years ago, I went to a play in Dublin in the Peacock Theatre, the smaller theatre space in the Abbey, Ireland's National Theatre. The play was R.U.R., a 1920 work by the Czech writer Karol Čapek. Although very successful in its day, it's not a play that tends to get performed that often anymore, or at least not in Ireland anyway. Seemingly, the last time it was at the Abbey was in May 1929. So it's probably fair to say that your average theatre-goer had not heard of R.U.R. or Carol Chapek when it was performed there. You may not have heard of it either, unless, of course, you're a science fiction fan, in which case you're probably aware that R.U.R. stands for Rossum's Universal Robots. The lines I quoted a minute ago about the robot uprising, these are lines from the final scene of the play. R.U.R. is well known in particular because it's where we get one of the most famous neologisms in all of science fiction, robot. The word is derived from the Czech word for worker, but with a sense here that's maybe closer to forced labour or even slavery. The play is set in a future in which emotionless, human-like robots, closer really to what we might call androids now, have become a cheap and efficient form of labour across the world. Their increased sentience as the play goes on, however, quickly leads to problems and they ultimately revolt against their human creators. So, right from the very first use of the word robot, there are tensions and contrasts between this miraculous technological advancement on the one hand that the robots embody and these fundamental issues of freedom and slavery and what it is to be human. These are tensions, as we'll see in this episode, that have only increased in the decades since Chapek's play, both in the field of robotics as well as in fiction and popular culture. So I thought I'd better talk to two people. A roboticist who also writes about literature. I'm Dr. Robin Murphy. I'm a professor of computer science and engineering at Texas A&M, and I specialize in robotics, artificial intelligence and robotics. But I also love science fiction. And I write and blog about the interaction between science fiction and robotics and real robots. And a literature professor who's worked and published extensively on robotics. So my name's Teresa Heffernan, and I'm a, a professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at St. Mary's University in Halifax in Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, and I work, one of my areas anyway, is on robots and AI and fiction. 
Now, robots were not invented by Chapek by any means. There's a long history of various types of automated or mechanical or artificial people created by humans. You have plenty of animated creatures in classical mythology or tales like the golem from Jewish folklore, an animated being made from clay in the most well-known version of the tale. In the 19th century, there is, of course, Frankenstein's monster, as well as plenty of creatures powered by steam and then electricity. Many of these are what came to be called Edison Aids, stories inspired by and typically starring the renowned inventor Thomas Edison. There are distinctions, of course, between all of these. Everett F. Blyler's wonderful science fiction, The Early Years, the near 1,000-page doorstopper reference book, and my go-to starting point for many Words to That Effect episodes, lists a whole host of different variants. Androids, anthropomorphic and zoomorphic prime movers, automatons, cyborgs, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to go into all of the distinctions here, and in any case, they're not often that clear. Blyler defines a robot as a device capable of individual action without control or direction from outside, which I think is fair enough. It's that lack of outside control which is really key in moving from simply machines in the shape of humans to machines capable of making decisions for themselves. The former can be seen in, say, The Steam Man of the Plains by the dime novelist Edward Ellis, one of the best-known examples of an early robot-like creature, but where the steam man in question is a machine in the shape of a man which still needs outside direction. There is more autonomy in a tale like The Future Eve by the French writer <clears throat> Jean-Marie Mathias Philippe Auguste Comte de Villiers de Lille Adam. <sighs> Those aristocrats and their names. This is the work credited with introducing the word android, a story in which Thomas Edison, again, creates an artificial woman. Which brings us back to... Carl Chapek's R-U-R, Rosam's Universal Robot, Rosam's Universal Robots. That's Teresa Heffernan again. And Chapek explains in this 1923 interview, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that, you know, the older inventor, Mr. Rosam, is actually a product of 19th century scientific materialism. And he's, his desire to create an artificial man is about proving God unnecessary and absurd. But then the younger Rosam is a scientist who doesn't care about metaphysics, and he's only interested in, you know, industrial production. And Chepek warns, he says, and this is a quote from him, those who think to master the industry are themselves mastered by it. Robots must be produced, although they're a war industry, or rather because they are a war industry. And I think, you know, in comparison with those earlier myths about the creation of artificial people, here you get a shift to the sort of anxieties about the legacy of the Industrial Revolution, automation, increasing wealth divisions, mechanization, and the military-industrial complex. So that's kind of an interesting background Murphy. to see that we've had both that sort of hard science that robots are there for, you know, as mechanisms, as the apotheosis of invention. And then we have this other narrative that they're a way to explore otherness. They're a way to explore humanity. They're a way to explore discrimination. The science and the fiction, the technological achievement and the ethical, philosophical and social questions behind it. And so, from the early 20th century onwards, robots became a mainstay of both science fiction and popular culture, and soon enough, scientific research. Sometimes in complementary ways, sometimes, as we'll see, in very problematic ways. 
Not long after RUR came the Fritz Lang silent film Metropolis, a classic which has been hugely influential on film generally and science fiction in particular since its release in 1927. Uh, Metropolis, again, a very social view of, of robots where the rich people realize they can build robots to replace the workers and they're going to solve that problem. They won't have to deal with those pesky workers who literally live underground and have very bad product safety and worker safety ethics and that. And they just won't even have to worry about that anymore. And so they, they build Maria, a replica of Maria, and she's an evil, slutty robot to help encourage the workers to, to do a rebellion that they can't possibly win, so there'll be an excuse to put that rebellion down. And then it backfires on everyone. From there, you have robots in all sorts of science fiction stories, particularly in the pulp fiction magazines from the 1930s onwards. Then, perhaps most famously, there's Isaac Asimov's Robot Stories, the collection I, Robot, and lots of others. From these stories, we get Asimov's famous three laws of robotics. A robot may not harm a human or, through inaction, allow harm to come to a human. A robot must obey orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. A robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. And the big pivotal moment, and of course, Asimov had been writing the iRobot stories back in the 40s, mostly coming from the use of robots for the nuclear industry. Because when we, during World War II, we're having to handle nuclear material, and you can't do that as a human. And so building these teleoperated Waldos, right, these force-reflecting manipulators, which Highland wrote a story about called Waldo, of which everybody who uses them calls the Waldos as a result because self-reflecting force manipulators, it just doesn't really trip off the tongue. So you saw that, and, and that, again, that idea that whole entire processes would be taken over by robots because it was so unsafe for a human to do that. And what would that mean? And from Asimov onwards, robots have become a mainstay of popular culture, taking on a whole array of different forms. And then later in Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that of course was uh, the basis of the, of the film Blade Runner, you have androids who are built as labor and servants, but they're in, they, they inhabit this degraded world due to radiation contamination from nuclear war. And in that, you know, in Dick and then also in Blade Runner, you're never quite sure about that boundary between the human and the robot and the android. In the first Alien, which is 1979, you have Ash, who's an android built by a corporation, you know, and but Ash views the crew as expendable. But then in the later Alien series, Bishop is an android that turns against his makers and ends up siding with the crew. So that in turn is opening that possibility of turning tech against its, its, its makers. And then, of course, there's a whole other tradition of fiction and robots, um, you know, as friendly or heroic. So you get Astro Boy in the Japanese anime series and C-3PO and R2-D2 in Star Wars and Data in Star Trek and Rosie the Robot in the Jetsons. You know, this promise of technology is, as, as offering us all this leisure time. So we have robots as high-tech labor-saving devices and as usurpers of human jobs. Robots as distinctly other and as indistinguishable from humans. Robots as a means of questioning what it is to be human and highlighting the ethics behind the creation of artificial life. 
There's a lot going on here. And these are fictional robots. We haven't even got to the real-life ones yet. But this is important. Fictional robots are not real robots, much as we might like to think of them in the same ways. This is something that Dr. Haffernan has spent a lot of time trying to pick apart. But I started to notice in the media and in academic and popular science journals references to fiction, particularly in the discussions of AI and robotics. And it was as if, like, you know, fiction was coming true and you saw a lot of headlines like that in the, in the media, you know, was, oh, look, you know, another science fiction comes true. And I thought, well, that's just not how fiction works. So I spent a couple of years visiting robotics labs in the U.S. and Japan. And I even stayed at the robot hotel in Wittenbosch, which is uh, in Japan. You know, and I talked to a lot of people in the... Wait, sorry, back a second. What's the robot hotel? Oh, you haven't heard of the robot hotel. So it's a robot hotel. So I, I was there, when was I there? In 2015, I think. And it got tons and tons of media attention. And it, the idea was that, you know, it was this robot hotel and it was all run, staffed by robots and that this was the future of the hotel industry. Um, so I, I went to stay there. You know, it was all very gimmicky and you could see right from the beginning that it was really about having the humans as this technology so often is about getting the humans to do all the labor you know so it was like a glorified kind of automated check-in in 2019 the hotel made headlines again when it laid off half of its robot staff seemingly lots of them just didn't really work properly or they were just very annoying the velociraptor robots at check-in weren't actually able to check people in properly and the concierge robot couldn't give guests information about nearby attractions Lots of the robots have now been replaced by humans. There was this little robot in my room called Cherry Chan. And, uh, you know, it started talking and it was speaking Japanese, of course, but it started talking in the middle of the night. I just about jumped out of my skin. And then as I was trying to turn it off, you know, all the lights kept going on and everything was automated. It was just like a nightmare. I was... <laughs> You know, I was really like, yeah, it was, a, it was a strange, it was a strange hotel. I can't believe I'd never come across this place before. Anyway, returning to the robots of science fiction and science fact. You know, and I talked to a lot of people in the field of AI, and I was trying to sort out the fiction from the science and to investigate some of those claims about human-like machines. And I think everywhere now that I'm looking, fiction is used to market the industry of AI and robotics. And I want to reclaim fiction as fiction. So, you know, fiction as allegory and metaphor. Um, in other words, not some literal future. Fiction, by definition, you know, it, it doesn't come true. It's not prophetic. And fiction is the place of the impossible and it's the place of the fabulous and when science fiction is just conflated with science fact, you get tech propaganda. And then you get this whole promise, you know, of things like autonomous, super intelligent machines. And, and you get predictions of the singularity where humans and machines are supposed to emerge and we're all supposed to fly off into the cosmos. And, you know, and, and, and we're all, we're all going to be immortal. This is a whole other world, transhumanism. In fact, I did a whole episode about it, number 16. You can check it out after this if you like. And I think all this distracts from what's really going on in the big tech corporations, which are the ones who are buying up the AI and robotics companies. So companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon, 
And, you know, what have they been doing with it? Well, they've been amassing huge amounts of wealth and power by stealing private data and selling it. They've contributed to the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories with algorithms that favor sensationalist content over fact-based arguments. They're investing in a kind of platform capitalism and the, and the Uberization of work. And one of the things that their uh, algorithms do are automate and accelerate race and gender and class biases. Um, and they've also there's this, you know, forcing of humans to work like machines. And the other questions come up. And I think, you know, again, all distracted, if you're just reading the field through fiction, what gets lost is, well, what are the environmental impacts of this resource intensive energy and the huge amounts of power that are required for training AI models? And how is ethics being discussed in the field? And what does the future of warfare look like given the massive investment of the military? And what happens to society when we have technology that manipulates language but doesn't understand it? Science fiction can be a powerful tool to understand the world around us, but not if it's reduced to propaganda. Many scientists, of course, have been influenced by science fiction, but Dr. Heffernan, not unreasonably, worries about a complete and utter misreading of the source material. You have a whole advisory, scientific advisory board that is advises Hollywood on getting the science right in Hollywood films. You have no equivalent of scientists expected to get the fiction right, you know, and, and when I say get the fiction right, I mean, how do they read it in the kind of cultural or historical context? How do they understand allegory? How do they understand figurative language? Um, you know, and there's no attention to that aspect of fiction when it gets used by scientists. And all of this might be kind of funny if it didn't have such huge real-world repercussions. Take the issue of space exploration. I look at Jeff Bezos, and who's head of Amazon, and then Elon Musk, and they both attribute their, their interest in their space ambitions with Star Trek. And then you look at Gene Roddenberry, you know, who's the creator of Star Trek. And he said, well, I was influenced by Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels of the 18th century. And he wasn't envisioning some realizable future of space travel, you know, any more than Swift believed there were nations of six inch people. And so Roddenberry was always insisting that each show was about learning from the past in order to form the present and that each episode was about offering up a vision of the world that was more equitable and more just. So he was emerging from the counterculture of the 60s and he was using allegory to write about racism and the Vietnam War and civil rights and gender inequity and advertising and intercontinental missiles and nationalism. And I think when Bezos, you know, who sort of models himself after or thinks he models himself after Captain Picard or Elon Musk attribute their space ambitions. I'm, I want to say like, well, how are you reading fiction though? That you're, you know, you're talking about kind of power and ambition and colonialism and imperialism and all these things that Star Trek was actually questioning. With that, I'm going to take a quick break to tell you some exciting news about the show and to talk about the sponsor of this episode, which is the podcast 180 Degrees. So 180 Degrees is a show that shares the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. 
There are episodes about making your home more energy efficient, about electric vehicles, and the most recent episode looks at lots of sort of simple ways that you can work with your local community to become more energy efficient. So there's some really inspiring stuff in there. I would highly recommend a listen. So the show is called 180 Degrees, and it's brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland, and you can find it wherever you're listening to this show right now. Next up, I want to tell you about Headstuff Plus. You may have seen the brief announcement episode I did. So this is a brand new membership platform from Headstuff, the network that this show is a part of. So if you are enjoying this episode, if you really like the show and you want to support it, well, that would be amazing. So all you need to do is go to headstuffpodcasts.com. The idea is that it costs a fiver a month and in return you get bonus episodes and other goodies not just from me and from this show but from every show on the network. So it doesn't matter what show or shows you support, you get all the bonus content from every podcast. So that's like nearly 30 podcasts and there's some really great shows on the network that I think you might like. So that's headstuffpodcast.com and click join. Also, I need money to upgrade my robot voice changer toy. And finally, speaking of Headstuff Podcasts, have a listen to a trailer from one of the other shows on the network. Sissy That Pod is an unofficial RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast. There's a brand new season of the show already in full flow, so now's the perfect time to join James and Kean as they go through each week's episodes. Come on, Sissy That Pod, let's get... Thickening! Are you a fan of the Emmy award-winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, Sissy That Pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right, whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All-Stars, Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play! Back to the robots. So if Dr. Heffernan is trying to reclaim science fiction as fiction and highlights the dangers of using fictional robots as tech propaganda, Dr. Robin Murphy is building robots with a very keen sense of both how science fiction can help roboticists and of the ethics behind robots and artificial intelligence. Ethics is part of what we do as engineers, right? I mean, we've got a code of ethics, uh, things that we should be looking at. A lot of the discussions about ethics of AI, and I have been an XPRIZE, AI XPRIZE judge, I have been AI for good, I've been doing humanitarian AI work for two decades. A lot of the discussions we hear about ethics are about, oh, you know, we need to give robots right and we don't want to impress them and stuff. And I'm like, no, we're still at the operational morality level is making sure the algorithms work. I mean, we've seen a lot of discussion about biased in algorithms that when you train computer vision systems, like for a car, not to hit people, they're using databases that are mostly white male adults. And so people of color, it tends not to recognize and it doesn't recognize kids. So you could conceivably wind up with a system that is safer statistically than a, a person driving, but could in fact be more likely to take out kids or kids of color. 
because it's not as good. You know, and that's like, whoa, whoa, no, that's not good. No, we got to do better. So that's a very different conversation than the conversations we see in the press, which are more like, well, will robots be uprising, you know? A robot uprising may make for a great science fiction story, but we're probably safe from the robots for a while yet anyway. Dr. Murphy's work is actually in the area of disaster robotics. She is, in fact, one of the co-founders of the field. I tell people I've been in 29 disasters, not of my own making, with robots. And so my research is in artificial intelligence, and in particular, human-robot interaction, how to use artificial intelligence to reduce human error or to reduce robot error in these very high-consequence, high-pressure situations. And it's all based on what we see in the field. So it's very field-informed. I tell people a lot of my work is participant-observer anthropology, like Margaret Mead, you know, the, the one who was in Samoa with beaches and everybody having lots of sex. I get to go to disasters where there are no beaches, there's no sex that I'm aware of, it's hot, it's nasty, or it's super cold, and I'm grateful if there is a porta potty anywhere near. So, kind of different, but it is participant observer ethnography. And when she's not on the ground deploying robots in the immediate aftermath of 9 11 or Hurricane Katrina or the Haiti earthquake or the Fukushima nuclear disaster, she uses science fiction as a way to help fellow roboticists and students better understand the field. What we know how to do in, in artificial intelligence for robotics is more than we can actually build. I mean, you think about a robot, it's a very complex. You know, you have to get, let's use a human body analogy, you have to get all the muscles, the skeleton, the nerves, the eyes, the tactile, you know, sensing your fingers. Everything has to be perfect or it doesn't work. And that's very hard. And so typically you don't see a lot of robots, inexpensive, so you don't see a lot of actual robots. And the same thing with autonomous cars. They're good up to a point. And so we can see the theory, but we can't see, I can't give them good concrete examples to take apart. But we've got some good science fiction stories that illustrate certain attributes that we can take apart and use that as a way to ground. She published Robotics Through Science Fiction in 2018, using stories by Asimov and Philip K. Dick and several others to explain the principles of artificial intelligence. She also works on human-robot interaction, one of the most fascinating and incredibly complicated aspects of robotics. I mean, so much of science fiction involving robots hinges on this aspect, how we as humans interact with robots. There's the famous Turing test where a person has a text-based conversation with a machine and a fellow human, and the machine is deemed to have passed if the tester is unable to work out which is the machine and which is the person. There's also that strange, uncanny feeling of talking to something that seems to be human but is not. And in fact, even the concept of the uncanny comes from Freud and other early 20th century psychology, using a robot-like character in an E.T.A. Hoffman story, The Sandman. Novels like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and the film version Blade Runner, or more recently the reimagining of Battlestar Galactica, centre around an inability to tell the difference between humans and human-like robots or androids. Sometimes it's the smallest of interactions that give a robot away as non-human. And you may think that with today's technology, basic human-robot interaction might be a relatively easy task. You would be wrong. A lot of people keep saying, oh, I just want to be able to talk to it like a person. 
So it'll do what I want it to do. And it's like, yeah, well, 50% of the time I tell my students what I want them to do and they do something else because human conversation is ambiguous. We have a very strong common ground. We have a background, shared background, a lot of common sense. You know, about 20 years of that, storing lots of data about the world. And then we use these cues like when you say, oh, could you pick up my book? And I'm looking over and there's one book over there and you see that I'm looking there. And so that must be my book and you're going to bring that. Well, that's an awful lot to expect a robot to do, right? I mean, that took years. I mean, you're talking, what, eight, 10 years, maybe 15 to get your kids to do that, you know? I asked Dr. Murphy about some fiction that embodies some of these concepts in robotics, and she mentioned the novel Little Eyes by the Argentine writer Samantha Schweblin, published just last year in translated form. In the book, there's a new gadget invented. It's called a Kentucky, and it has become wildly popular across the world. And they're about the size of a Furby, but they got wheels. And the deal is, is that you can buy the robot... And you can buy it and it can look like a dragon or it can look like a panda. It's got five basic shapes and you buy that. Well, somebody else buys a controller, which is a dedicated tablet. So it's like your own little Game Boy tablet computer. And then if enough people buys them, then they they hook up. They randomly pair you, uh, you with the controller and you're called the dweller. And the one who actually owns the robot is called the keeper. And then it turns on, and then lo and behold, you as the keeper get to watch somebody who's trying to figure out how to control this cheap robot with one camera. And it can't talk, so it can't really do anything, but it can roll around. And so now it's kind of a game. What are they trying to do? What are they trying to say? You know, why why do they keep going to the window? Well, that may be because you live in Scandinavia and they live in Jamaica and they really want to see snow, right? But you, you don't know that. And so that's kind of fun. And that solved the problem, which we've seen like with the Sony Ibo dogs, which didn't really do anything interesting compared to what real dogs do because real dogs have a strong sense of what they want to do when. Like my dog, when he, if I'm teaching from home remotely and he wants to go outside, he really doesn't care what my needs are. So, you know, and that can be annoying, whereas the Sony Ibo dog, you just turn it off. The book, as you might imagine, explores both the fascinating and novel aspects of this connection, as well as the dark and more disturbing sides of having a creature controlled by someone else living in your house. And it does it in a way that, for a roboticist, really highlights some of the ethical issues and technical limitations around human-robot interaction. There's also the work of John Scalsey, who has published two science fiction police procedurals, Lock In from 2014 and Head On from 2018. In these novels, a virus has swept across the world, yes, which for some people causes complete paralysis, a form of locked-in syndrome, where a person is awake but unable to move in any way. And one of the first victims is the president's wife, so Hayden, so he he does a moonshot-type program. They develop brain-machine interfaces, so you're paralyzed, but you can interact with the world through, through a robot. So you're teleoperating a robot. And you, you have a, a rich virtual reality interface with everybody else. But you're mostly interacting with that. 
And some people don't like the Haydens and the threes, so they call the the robots C-3PO because they look kind of humanoid and they're kind of annoying. So, you know, what a perfect name. And so as Chris, the main character, jumps from robot body, he's an FBI investigator, uh, a precinct that doesn't like him just hasn't bothered to recharge his, his body. So he can't do anything when he gets there. And you see that some of the handicap access he can't, isn't handicap accessible, so he can't get his robot body there. And so you're seeing that kind of discrimination. And what does that mean when you're in a different group? Uh, how does that play out? And so I think that's, that was one of the uh, very fun, realistic discussions. So the robot uprising will not be happening anytime soon. Instead, we need to explore how robots really work, as complex as that may be. We can celebrate innovative, sometimes life-changing technology and open up new ways to talk about AI and robotics. But we can also look to the best fiction to act not as a marketing exercise for big tech companies, but as a way to explore all sorts of questions about our identity and our humanity. So that's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. And a huge thank you to my two guests, Dr. Teresa Heffernan and Dr. Robin Murphy. Dr. Heffernan's most recent book is Cyborg Futures, Cross-Disciplinary Perspectives on Artificial Intelligence and Robotics. And it is exactly that, taking in really varied perspectives from all sorts of different disciplines. I'll put a link to this and to all of Dr. Heffernan's work and her bio on the WTTE website, which is WTTEpodcast.com. Dr. Murphy has a TED Talk on the area of disaster robotics, if you're interested in learning more about that, which you can watch at TED.com, or you can have a look at all of her different work at her website, roboticsthroughsciencefiction.com. And again, I'll put links to everything on the WTTE website. Everything else is there too, past episodes, links to help support the show and links to social media. I'm on Twitter at CEDREAD, C-E-D-R-E-I-D, um, and the show is on Instagram and Facebook at Words to That Effect. So tell your friends, human and robot, about the show. I would love to keep reaching new listeners, keep growing the show, and I can do that with your help. Or you can also help out by going to headstuffpodcast.com and signing up to support the show. See you next time for episode 50. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.